Well, in a couple hours when we're done, uh, or an hour, I should say, when we're done here, uh, we will be sort of mingling and filing out of this building and back to our homes and our cars. And, and you might assume at that point that uh, sort of what the Lord had wanted to accomplish, we hope was accomplished here this morning. You might uh, think you, you've come and you've, you've uh, presented to the Lord uh, an eager and a willing heart to hear what He might have to say to you and to respond. That certainly is the heart that you should come with each week as you prepare for worship. But you might assume at that point that you can turn your att- attention and mind to other things. But if you did that, you may very well miss something more that God has for you, something that takes place every Sunday around here and in most churches across America, something which the Lord uses and something that is filled with the Spirit um, as much as the preaching. And that is the casual conversations. They'll take place in the chairs as you sit uh, afterward and visit. They'll take place in the foyer and in the hallways and in the, uh, the parking lot. And as you make your way back to the car, there will be all kinds of conversations that are taking place. And in those conversations, there are going to be words of encouragement and there are going to be words of exhortation. There's going to be words of, of even challenge and admonishment. There's going to be mutual sharing of burdens or even you'll be able to just listen and hear the testimony of someone and be challenged by their example. And there's all kinds of ways that God uses those. In fact, you'll talk to some people and they might be surprised that as they come to a Sunday morning worship service to find that on that particular Sunday, God might have used one of those seemingly random conversations in your life more than he used anything in the formal worship service. We don't overlook such, such uh, random conversations because we know that God can even use those to remind us and to challenge us in his ways. Well, that's a similar thing when we come to the end of a New Testament book or the end of a New Testament letter. And even today, as we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and the final 15 verses of this chapter, it's a helpful thing for us to keep in mind because what we find here, as we find in so many other passages, is really a conglomeration of various greetings and words of exhortation and words of encouragement that might on the surface appear to just be random statements and might be even a temptation for you to assume that there's nothing for you in it. But we remind ourselves that just as much as God speaks through a sermon, He may speak through a word of exhortation among believers in the same way, just as much as the body of the book of Corinthians is inspired, so too are these closing comments and these closing thoughts. And often embedded in them are critical lessons or beautiful examples or needed exhortations or whatever it might be. And that's what we find here today. Paul is writing this as he does in all of his letters. And he writes these things from verse 10 through 24 
basically dealing with people, giving information about people. He's greeting people. He's sending greetings from people and giving some final instructions and exhortations. And as I said, they may appear to be random statements in one sense, but if there's any one thing that ties all of them together, it would be that. It would be people. Essentially, everything he has to say here is about people. And it's about the way that you respond to certain people, the way you treat certain people, the way you, the, the way you act toward them, the way you even greet them. And so it's all about the people, and not just the people, but we could say even particularly about people who are involved with the work of the Lord. Paul mentions it even in verse 10 when he talks about Timothy, who was doing the Lord's work as Paul himself was doing. And you go all the way through the passage, and what you hear as he talks about all these people is that every one of them, in some way or another, are involved with the work of the Lord. And so these final instructions are really about that. It's about the people who are doing the work of the Lord. And in many ways, it's about the way that the church responds to them. And Paul writes it, not just as a throwaway addendum, but he writes it specifically because he, he's, he's jealous, you might say, or he's desirous that the work of the Lord through the Corinthian church would continue on in a fruitful and in a productive manner. He doesn't want, in other words, he doesn't want the work to be hindered by any of these people, and consequently in any of the ministries they're involved with, he doesn't want that work to be hindered from a group of people who are taking an improper attitude or are not demonstrating the proper attributes for uh, how they respond to these leaders. In many ways, then, these are sort of the attributes of a church who, who uh, uh, continues on in fruitfulness or the attributes that make for a fruitful ministry when it comes to particularly the way they relate to one another, the way that they serve alongside one another. Attributes that we might say assure fruitful ministry. And you can, as I said, just hear it as Paul speaks of each of these people and each of these situations and how he is calling on the church to keep certain attitudes or to maintain certain attributes as they relate to them. He says in verse 10, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he's doing the work of the Lord as I am. Let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace that he may return to me, for I'm expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know the household of Stephanus were the first converts of Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunaeus and Achaicus because they made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such men. To the churches of Asia, 
excuse me, the churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord come. May the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. May love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Numerous people that Paul mentions here, numerous kind of situations, but they're all really aimed at instructing this church and keeping them on track with the way they ought to respond to one another in the work of the Lord. And the aim of it is not just to have comfort and ease for those who are maybe serving in some capacity. The aim of it all was so that the ministry would continue on in fruitfulness, in productivity, in effectiveness for the, for the Lord. In many ways, this is really, I believe, just an expansion of what Paul said just a few verses earlier at the end of chapter 15. You remember how he ended that whole chapter telling each one of them that it's their responsibility to be steadfast, immovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord. So in many ways, what he's giving us here is simply the I guess you could say the roadmap or some of the attributes of a church that is doing just that. A church that is continuing to be productive. A church that's continuing to be fruitful. A church that is continuing to abound in the work of the Lord. And we could enumerate, I believe, six sort of attributes that Paul calls for here or demonstrates here. The first one would just be gentleness. It'll be gentleness. He directs the church in verse 10, when Timothy comes, that it's their responsibility to put him at ease. Put him at ease among you, for he's doing the work of the Lord as I am. They are, in other words, they're to deal gently with Timothy. They're to put him at ease. And the reason is because of what he's doing. They need to do it because... He's doing the work of the Lord. And the implication is, I don't want that to be hindered. I don't want that to be sidetracked. Paul understood as well as anyone how this can happen. He understood conflict. I mean, he, he was the guy, you remember, who, who tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 1 that he was almost at the point of death. He, he faced so much opposition uh, in Ephesus. He told them back in chapter 15, verse 20, uh, uh, 23, I think it was, that he felt like he was uh, 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 facing uh, wild animals in Ephesus, maybe literally, maybe, maybe symbolically, but he knew opposition. He was the guy who was stoned. He was the guy who was regularly run out of town. He was let out through windows and high walls to escape death. This was the guy who was imprisoned as he was is he was uh, hounded everywhere he went by critics and by naysayers and by people that were constantly coming against him. But we all understand, I mean, that is the unbelieving world. These were all unbelievers who were chasing after Paul and doing all this sort of uh, obstructive work. But it wasn't just that. Because Paul understood that it could equally come from believers 
And that's really what he's aiming at here. He's aiming at them. And he understands that ministry is hard enough without any kind of obstacles you would face from the world. The last thing you want to happen is for those sort of obstacles to be thrown up in the church. But Paul knew even that. I mean, he had people at almost every turn who were questioning his motives, who were questioning his decisions. Even we looked at last week, he was making a decision to come to Corinth. He had to change his plan and make an alteration. And immediately what happens? People begin to question his motives. They question things that he did. They question his calling as an apostle. They question his ability as a speaker. They say in 2 Corinthians 10 that he's unimpressive in public speaking. He had all kinds of constant critics both outside and inside the church and Paul understood what it felt like and what it meant to face this constant resistance and even rejection but all the more difficult when it comes from within the church aspersions cast up against you all the time he understood the detrimental effect that it can have on your ministry And especially for a young man like Timothy. He knew the wear and tear that it takes on any leader. And he knew the negative impact it could have on Timothy's ministry. Who was just now beginning to do the work of the Lord. Timothy at this point, this is probably in the early to mid 50s when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. One of the first books he wrote. And we know in 2 Timothy 1... Some 10 years later, Paul's final book, he's still writing to Timothy in his mid-30s at that point and telling Timothy not to let people look down on his youth. He was still a timid man. It was his nature to be timid, and he already had sort of a fearfulness about people. In fact, in that book in 2 Timothy 1, he says, don't let anyone look down on your youth. And, And in the very next verse, he says, and don't be ashamed of me, his prisoner. In other words, a lot of this fearfulness, a lot of this timidity from Timothy was a direct result of his close association with the Apostle Paul. And so here he is now, he's probably carrying a letter that Paul himself wrote. He's probably carrying the book of 1 Corinthians, coming down through Macedonia and delivering the book. He obviously would be closely associated with the Apostle Paul. And not only that, he's some 10 years younger. He's probably in his early to mid-20s. And Paul knows his nature and he knows his inexperience and he knows his timidity. And so he wants to get out in front of this and urge the church. It is your responsibility, he says, to put him at ease. In other words, deal graciously with him. There are plenty enough or there is plenty enough harshness in ministry. There are plenty enough burdens that... That this man must already bear. You don't want to add to them. By your unnecessary roughness. Or lack of gentleness. Be peaceable with him. That's what he says in verse 11. So let no one despise him. But help him on his way in peace. That he may return to me. For I'm expecting him with the brothers. All this is sort of. Similar, I think, to what the writer of Hebrews will tell his people, the people he's writing to, when he 
urges them in Hebrews 13 to obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. And he says, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And what he's saying there is there's a certain level in which your constant uh, resistance or your constant challenging or your constant critiquing or your constant questioning of your leaders and not just simply following and yielding and being gracious with them. There's a certain point where, where you do that and you cause the overall ministry to be negatively impacted. You, you just weigh down your leaders with your negativity or at least the fear of your negativity and that negative impact come back, comes back on you and everyone else. When they are uh, the, the leaders who are bearing all the weight of that are now no longer putting their full heart and soul into the ministry because of what they're having to face. And so Paul says, look, for the sake of the fact that this young man, Timothy, he's doing the work of the Lord. For the sake of his, excuse me, for the sake of the work, for the sake of the work, at least, put him at ease, be peaceable to him. Continue to allow him to flourish and be gentle. Secondly, we might say that Paul demonstrates or, or calls for, I should say, or exemplifies another attribute that every flourishing and productive and fruitful ministry will be known by, and that's simply deference. It's deference. In verse 12, he mentions Apollos, and he Himself, not, no, not necessarily calling for this, but he himself uh, uh, exemplifies this deference when he says, concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, probably with Timothy and Silas who was traveling with him. He says, I urged him to visit you, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come as he has opportunity. So here's the Apostle Paul, and he, in his mind, he feels like that this is a strategic time, this is a necessary time, this is an important time, and that the Corinthian church needed the Apostle Paul, excuse me, needed the, the, this teacher Apollos right now. And so he doesn't just ask him, he says, I strongly urged him. He made strong appeals. This was, this was something that was... Uh, uh, obviously deeply felt by the Apostle Paul, but he simply says it wasn't his will to go. So in other words, what you have here is a disagreement. You have a basic disagreement, not over doctrine, but over strategy, over timing, over the right approach. They weren't disagreeing about what to teach, or they weren't disagreeing about the foundations of their theology. This wasn't an issue of principle, and if it was, no doubt Paul would have confronted and would have exhorted Apollos to repent and to change his mind. But what you have here is a disagreement about how to approach or how to go about accomplishing the ministry. And in this particular situation, these men have different ideas. And what does Paul do? This apostle who had every bit of authority 
that he needed. He could have commanded Apollos to do this. He could have simply exercised that authority. But what does he do? He demonstrates deference. He yields to Apollos. He submits to how the Lord is leading this other gifted and godly man. We talk about this all the time among our own among our, ourselves as leaders, the, the need, if we're to maintain a healthy church and have maintain a healthy focus on the ministry, the need to constantly be differentiating between issues of principle and issues of preference. And understanding that when it comes to issues of preference, the, the demand upon us is to yield. The demand upon us is to demonstrate the attitude which was in Christ Jesus who, who didn't... Uh, Regard uh, equality to God essentially didn't require, uh, regard his position or his, his uh, place as, as something of, a, uh, of entitlement. But he constantly yielded himself to others. He esteemed others as more important than himself. He looked out for their interest above his own. And so Paul s- surely preferred Apollos to go. But he wasn't going to suggest that somehow this was some absolute law And he wasn't going to use his authority to demand it. And he wasn't even going to attack Apollos for the disagreement. Unfortunately, this is not the practice in many places. Because where in so many places there seems to be a readiness to to tolerate and to yield and to compromise on almost every point of doctrine. So that churches are willing to put up with all kinds of aberrant teaching and all kinds of deviant doctrine, it seems, in the name of unity and name of keeping peace. They're unwilling to confront and unwilling to challenge in so many areas of doctrine. And yet when it comes to approach and when it comes to strategy and when it comes to the way they carry out their ministry, these become the areas of division. I mean, it's... It's, the, 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 it's the, the, the little things like personal style or even musical style or the color of a bulletin or the times of the Sunday school or something like that that inevitably wind up being the things that derail ministries because they become focused on the minor issues and forget the majors. Well, Paul wasn't going to do that. He understood that although he had a disagreement with Apollos, That this was a faithful man who had demonstrated his faithfulness time and time again. And so Paul, when he came to an area of disagreement with Apollos, wasn't going to try to strong arm him. He wasn't going to try to manipulate him. He simply deferred. He yielded. Because he knew that this is what fruitful, productive, godly ministries do. And this is the way they remain fruitful. This is the way that they remain focused on the things that allow the Lord to use them so much. And so he not only does that, but he sort of encourages the church to do that as well. He says he'll come when he has opportunity, he'll come. No disparaging comments about Apollos. Uh, No, no cheap shots at him. Just an affirmation. That it wasn't his desire right now, but he wants to be with you. And it will happen 
in the right time. Thirdly, maybe in a related way, we could add a third sort of attribute then of every fruitful and godly ministry. And that comes in verses 13 and 14 when Paul's really calling for courage. And for whatever reason, he sort of just... Uh, sticks in here between a discussion of Timothy and a discussion of Apollos and then down in verse 15 an eventual discussion of Stephanus and Achaicus and Fortunatus in the midst of all the discussion of these people for whatever reason Paul inserts a series of short uh, sort of uh, militant commands he says in verse 13 be watchful stand firm in the faith act like men be strong And maybe he's saying this because he's realizing that Apollos isn't coming and they're not going to have that strong leader in place that's going to lead them out and help them to take the kind of stands that they need to take and to make the kind of discerning calls they need to make. And so in light of the fact that Apollos isn't coming, maybe Paul is bolstering them to stand on their own two feet, to be able to to fight the battles they need to fight even without the leadership of Apollos. Or maybe it's some other reason, but whatever it is, it provides a healthy counterbalance to us because it reminds us that while Paul was willing to show deference to someone in an undefined area, an undefined sort of preference or strategy or timing in his travels, he was certainly not willing to show deference in areas of doctrine and truth. And that's essentially what he's calling for here, for them to be courageous, to be firm and strong when it comes to standing for the truth. You hear it in the words he says, be watchful, simply a, a word for being awake. Gregoreo is the word. It's basically calling you not to be apathetic, not to be indifferent. People are that way sometimes about doctrine. They Their main concern is that they just find a place to go worship that is enjoyable and peaceful and has no friction and they could be really, they could care less about whether or not all of the doctrine is pure. And they completely ignore the, the warnings over and over again in the New Testament that false teachers will come among you the same way they did among the people of Israel, 2 Peter, 1, 2 Peter 2, 1. Don't be naive, Peter is saying. They came before, they're coming now, they'll come again. And Peter says they will secretly introduce their destructive heresies. In other words, the false teaching never parades itself into a church. It doesn't come with a big banner saying we're here to to water down the gospel or to Uh, water down the clarity of God's word. We're here to deviate the church and to cause people to stumble. That's not the way false teaching comes in. It comes in secretly. It comes in stealthily. And consequently, you must be watchful, he says. You have to be on guard. You can't be lax and you can't be indifferent. And in case you wonder exactly what he's talking about watching for, he adds the second phrase, to stand firm in the faith. Not your faith, not your subjective personal belief, but the faith. In the same sense that Jude uses it when he says we have to contend earnestly for the faith that was 
handed down or delivered to us by the apostles. He's not talking about some apostle handing you your personal subjective belief. He's talking about how the apostles handed to us the faith of of Christianity, the body of doctrine, the content of truth that's in the New Testament. And this is what Paul's telling us we have to stand firm for. We have to be watchful. We have to be firm. We can't give up an inch of ground. And in order to do this, he says you have to act like men. Not in the sense that you have to be masculine, however people define that in various ways and in various times. But you have to be men as opposed to children. You have to be mature as opposed to immature. You have to be, we might even say, courageous. You have to be brave. You find, you find this sort of same contrast when Paul talks about false doctrine in other places. Even back in chapter 14, verse 20, he says, Don't be children in your thinking. In, be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. Look, you can, you, you can be naive. You can be inexperienced and uninitiated when it comes to evil. In fact, you ought to be. You ought to be pure. You ought to be uninitiated. You ought to be naive. But when it comes to your thinking, and when it comes to your doctrine, you have no excuse. You cannot be naive. You cannot be lax and indifferent. Or he says in Ephesians, don't be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. This is the way some people are. They just, they just don't like conflict. They don't like any kind of friction. They don't like negativity. And so they just sort of avoid any, any of that stuff. And consequently, they just allow their churches and their places of worship to be flooded with a whole plethora of different teachings and doctrines. And the eventual outcome of that is instability. It's tossing here and there like waves and winds on a sea. And you see people in the church just up and down and back and around and all over the place thrown in and thrown out of all sorts of situations. And it all stems from this tendency in our world to want to find approval from the world. To want to find acceptance. To want to find recognition and esteem. And if you're going to find recognition and you're going to find esteem, what you're going to have to demonstrate is a tolerance of every viewpoint. And it is the... It is the culture of the day. There are people today uh, going under the name of evangelical Christians, some of them pastors of large churches, best-selling authors among the Christian community. And they are openly challenging doctrines that have been long established and fought for with the careers and the reputations and in some cases the lives of faithful men and women through the years. I mean, you could start at the top just with the whole concept of the inerrancy of Scripture and the whole idea that when God inspired the Word of God, He inspired it without errors, and when it speaks, it speaks with His voice. And therefore, it speaks inerrantly. And that is, 
I would say across probably the majority of evangelicals today, an open question. But you go beyond that to even more, if you want to call it more fundamental, at least more long-standing doctrines like justification and imputed righteousness and, and, and the forensic declaration of your of your forgiveness that comes to us by the gospel of Christ. And that uh, increasingly in, in corners of evangelicalism is now an open debate. Whether or not you have to participate in your achievement of forgiveness. Or even beyond that, best-selling authors who are telling us that the whole concept of the Trinity needs to be re-examined. I mean, you can just go down the list. These are the big things. You could just go down the list of all the small things. Everything's on the table. Everything's open for debate. If you're to be some sort of well-respected and well-received Christian, then what you've got to demonstrate is that you are open to, to entertain all kinds of various ideas about everything that's been received in the church. Well, this is the antithesis of what Paul's calling for here. He's not calling for, for uh, you know, sort of uh, 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 dialogue and, and uh, a feel-good discussion among people about these fundamental things. No, what he's calling for is firmness. What he's calling for is, is uh, not giving up any ground. What he's calling for is fighting. What he's calling for is courage. He's calling for conviction. He's calling for them to grow up. Act like men. To stand for something. To understand that truth is unpopular. And if you hold to the truth, you will be unpopular. And so it requires a firm stand. It requires courage. And Paul says even there at the end, be strong. Be strong. Stand firm. Be strong. Or as he uses the phrase in another passage, Ephesians 6, he says, be strong uh, in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Same word there. There he's talking about spiritual warfare. He's talking about our battle against the, against the strongholds of satanic thought, about, against the, the, uh, the, the doctrines and the worldviews which set themselves up against the knowledge of God. All of those ways of thinking that are constantly assaulting you and the church, you have to stand strong and do battle and be courageous and act like men and quit acting like children. All these commands are given in very militant fashion. And perhaps that's why Paul adds verse 14. That even in light of all that, let all that you do be done in love. In other words, this fight doesn't have to be ugly. And it certainly doesn't need to be unloving. Your firmness doesn't need to be harsh. Your maturity doesn't need to be prideful. And it ought not to be self-righteous. If the Lord has been gracious enough to you to lead you into sound truth, that sound truth ought to demonstrate that it's penetrated your heart to such an extent that when you stand for the truth, you do it with humility. 
If you are going to be a defender of the gospel of grace, or we even say something like the doctrine of grace, then you better do it with grace. Or else you undermine the very thing you're trying to defend and you are self-defeating uh, uh, soldier in the battle because you are, you are ostracizing the very people you're trying to win by the attitudes that you're showing. You're, excuse, you're failing to demonstrate visibly what you're trying to uphold verbally. And so when we defend the faith and when we defend the gospel, when we defend the message of love, the fact that a holy God set apart for sin loved us enough to sacrifice himself as a completely innocent and spotless uh, uh, offering, then we have to do that with the same kind of humility that that message initially penetrated our heart with, the same kind of brokenness. The same kind of transformed and gentle love that God showed to us, we need to show to others. This is what fruitful ministries do. This is the kind of attributes that they have. They're, they are a group that's gentle amongst themselves. They're a group that's deferential amongst themselves. But they're also a group that understands when it comes to issues of principle. And when it comes to issues of truth, that there must be firmness and there must be courage. And then Paul quickly moves to add another uh, 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 attribute, I guess you would say, of this kind of a fruitful ministry, and that's esteem. Esteem, or you might say recognition, because that's essentially what Paul calls for, for a number of people. He mentions in verses 15 through 18, Stephanus along with all those who are in his household, and men like Fortunatus and Achaicus, and even all the way down at the very end in verse 18, all such people, he says, you are to give recognition to them, or you might say esteem to them. Because Paul knew it's the natural tendency to be, first of all, unresponsive, and second of all, to take for granted all these people who, who serve the saints and serve the Lord in all these areas. Paul understood that the natural tendency as, as you spend time with them and uh, work alongside of them is to begin to overlook them, to take them for granted, or even to disdain them. And so he calls for them, particularly for, he says, this man Stephanus, who along with his household were the first converts of their region in Achaia. And he says these people had devoted themselves to the service of the saints. That's Stephanus and his entire household. In fact, the, the, the King James, if you have the King James, you would see that it translates this as they addicted themselves because it uses a word for a strong inner compulsion like an addict going after a drug sort of just driven by something internally he says this is the way Stephanus approaches the ministry he is driven into this and he works at it in fact he says you're to be subject to such as these to every fellow worker and Laborer, these uh, words that he's talking about here, the word working and the word laboring, the second one there, kopiao, 
Paul uses it frequently to talk about ministry. We get our word copious from it because it implies sort of diligence and toil and strenuous work. That is to say, it stretches you, it pushes you, and most of all, it wearies you. That's what copious labor does. It wearies you in the way you do it. And he says, this is what was happening with Stephanus. And not only him, his whole household, because Paul understood that whenever someone enters into leadership, it involves sacrifice, not just from them, but most of the time it involves sacrifice even from their families. That even they are having to give up something in order to be so devoted and so addicted to this work. And the last thing you want to do he says, is then to buck their leadership, to be resistant, to just always be doubting and questioning and all those things and adding to the burdens that these people are already feeling. So he's calling them to yield to the leadership of Stephanus, to recognize the kind of labor and the kind of sacrifice that he's giving. He calls for recognition here. This isn't some formal recognition. He doesn't want to have some ceremony for him. And he certainly isn't calling for some plaque on the, the front of the church naming them in leadership. He's calling for a respect. He's calling for, he's calling for a certain attitude of, of honor that you give to them. Similar to what Paul tells the Ephesians in Timothy 5, 1 Timothy 5. When he says those who work hard at preaching and teaching are to be considered worthy of double honor. Stephanus was one of these people. He was to be respected. He was to be appreciated. He was to be yielded to in light of the fact of the difficulty that he already finds himself in ministry. And to fail to esteem him, to fail to recognize him, fail to yield To always take the role of a naysayer would be to detract from the work of the Lord. It would be to detract from the work that he desires to do in his church. It would not be an aid. It would be an obstacle to what God wants to do. It would be unprofitable for the ministry and it would be unfruitful in the end. As I mentioned, even back when we were talking about Timothy a few minutes ago, If you don't follow and honor those who God has placed over you in leadership, you add to the hardship of an already difficult task and you take the joy out of their service, which results obviously in less enthusiasm and often in less thoroughness in their labors, which results in diminished quality of their work. And in the end, it hurts everyone. It hurts you. It hurts the church. And so Paul reminds them in verse 18, I have been refreshed by Stephanus. Just in case they had forgotten or or had lost touch with the way that Stephanus had ministered to them, or maybe they had begun to take him for granted in their own lives, he wanted to tell them, hey, he's ministering to me. In your absence, he's representing you to me. 
and he's refreshing me. And the last thing I want to happen is for this man to be so burdened down and so weighed down with your negativity that he can no longer be a refreshment to my heart or to anyone else's. And so a church that remains fruitful, a church that remains productive, a church that understands the the work of the Lord and how to continue on in it will continue to show esteem to those who are serving and those who are laboring and those who are sacrificing for the sake of the Lord. Men like Epaphroditus, who Paul says in Philippians 2, uh, uh, they ought to rejoice in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard. This is the way you respond to those who are serving among you in these kinds of ways. There's another attribute that they ought to have as well. And it's sort of maybe the most general of all of them, but demonstrated for us in verses 19 through 21. And that's simply care. Simply genuine, visible expressions of love passed between believers. And you can see it just in these sort of greetings that he gives here at the end. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Uh, He's sort of speaking for all the churches among whom he's ministering there in Ephesus. And then he gets very specific about the church, particularly in Ephesus, the one that met at Aquila and Priscilla's home. And this would have been the the, uh, practice of the day before they had formal buildings, wealthy Members of the church would open up their courtyards. The homes that they had would have these large open courtyards with no roof on them, but capable of accommodating sometimes hundreds of people. And this is where the church would come to gather. As a matter of fact, the archaeology indicates that that uh, it was these homes that were immediately converted into churches as people began to decorate them and build baptistries in them and all those things. Uh, in the first centuries of the church. And this was the meeting place of the church. And so, so Paul says, not only all the churches in Asia send you greetings, Aquila and Priscilla, who, by the way, had ministered in Corinth and would have been uh, personally known to the church. They send you greetings as the church in their house. They all send you, he says in verse 20, all the brothers send you greetings. Just practical and intentional expressions of love. And we do this today. I mean, if you, you know, if we, if we go to the mission field, we always try to bring greetings to the churches from Faith Community Church. When missionaries come to visit us, they bring greetings to us from their church. Because although so many of you have not met those believers, and although some of you, so many of you wouldn't recognize them, or honestly even be able to communicate through the language barriers that are there, we are bound together with them, not only by the love of Christ and the truth of the gospel, but in some ways by the common labor that we work together with them in their, in their, in their work. We send mission teams over. We host their missionaries. They host our missionaries. And so we have this commonality. And the same thing was going on here. They knew Aquila and Priscilla from before. Now they're serving over in Ephesus. They had this common mutual concern. And so there was a bond of affection that was there. And you know this. If you go overseas and you join together with some of these churches that you've heard about and you've prayed for and you've heard reports of their ministry and you go over there and even though you can't always speak with them 
And even though you're separated by geography and culture, you immediately feel those bonds of love. And what he's doing here is simply giving expression to that. That this ought to be, this ought to be the way that Christians respond to one another. They ought to be constantly affirming their love, giving expressions of love, giving greetings of love to one another. And even locally, he says there at the end of verse 20, greet one another with a holy kiss. In other words, you ought to be doing this regularly around your fellowship. In this culture that Paul writes from, it was kissing, which in the Bible is always, or I should say with the exception of two references I found in the book of Solomon, a Song of Solomon, it's used in every other way in the sense of not romantic kissing, but in the sense of honor and respect. Most of the time, it's a reference of uh, of something that was reserved for kings or dignitaries or guests of honor. Like the lady who kissed Jesus' feet as she wiped them with her hair. They were kisses of honor. Or, or Psalm 2, which calls on the kings of the earth to kiss the sun. These were... These were expressions of respect and honor. And in the Jewish culture of the day, this was common for men to kiss other men and women to kiss other women as a mark of the kind of affection, the mark of the kinds of bonds that they had with one another. The church would pick up this custom and use it regularly in their own congregations and in their own gatherings to show this kind of mutual affection that they had one another men would kiss men usually on the forehead sometimes on the cheek women would likewise kiss other women and so you go into a fellowship in those days if you were a visitor and what you would see is all of these outward expressions of love taking place it would be visible it wouldn't just be verbal in our own culture it might be a hug between two men or between two women. It might be a hearty handshake. But whatever it is, Paul's saying you need to be doing this. You need to be visibly showing your love to one another. It can't be enough just simply for us to send our greetings and send our love. You need to be doing it. You need to be showing this. Visible expressions of love and honor. And then finally, one more attribute that Paul throws in here, but I think is still aimed at helping this church keep the pace of their productivity and remain fruitful and faithful. And that's discernment. Discernment. Paul adds it here in verse 22, verse, uh, excuse me, 21. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. In other words, at this point, the whole letter's been dictated to an amanuensis. That was the common practice of the day. The biblical writers, at least in the New Testament, very rarely wrote their own letters. They would hire a professional writer who knew in the, in the low lighting of the day and with the crude instruments and kind of a vellum or papyri that they wrote on, knew how to most efficiently And with the least amount of errors with these costly materials, they knew how to write and write clearly. And so Paul would have been dictating the entire letter 
up to this point. But at this point, he picks up the pen with his own hand. And he says, I write this greeting with my own hand. And then he gives a couple of statements made all the more powerful because these are the only ones that he bothered to write with his own hand. And he says, first of all, he gives a sort of a warning. He says, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. There's a Hebrew, excuse me, an, an uh, Aramaic expression carried over from the Hebrew, when, uh, which uh, I should say spoke about someone who was delivered over to God's wrath. It was really out of the Old Testament, uh, those who were set apart for cursing, or we would say they were put under the ban, meaning that they were put outside of the camp of Israel. They were ostracized from the fellowship of the saints. They were cut off from all the contact of God's people because they were under a curse. They were headed down a pathway of of destruction. And they were to put them out of the congregation for that reason. And that's essentially what Paul's calling for. He's sort of restating what he already said back in chapter 5, that when someone begins to live a life of disregard for God... And they become visibly no longer interested in loving the Lord. And you can see it in their life. At that point, he says, they are accursed. They're to be put out of the church, certainly, by the actions of a faithful congregation who won't tolerate their duplicitous living. But worse than that, they stand under the wrath of God. And they face his direct chastening and judgment. In Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says that it really leads to the destruction of their flesh so that their spirit might be saved. That is to say that either on one hand, as God's judgment begins to be poured out on you and your life begins to unravel or spiral downward, Perhaps you come to your senses and recognize that you've been a false believer all along. That's why you're no longer living for the Lord and you repent and you're safe. Or Paul means that, that God proceeds ahead with his chastening work in your life. Destroying you, but still saving your soul. But either way, you stand under the wrath of God. You've, become to, you've begun to visibly demonstrate that you no longer regard Him. You know, the sad thing is that before it's ever visible to a congregation, it's visible. It's visible to you. It's visible to the people who are closest to you. When you no longer see a need to be in the Word of God, you see it in your life when you no longer make the sacrifices or set the discipline. To feed yourself spiritually. To yield your heart to Him in confession. To spend time trusting the Lord through prayer. It's visible. And you've started down the pathway of the wrath of God. You started down the pathway of anathema. Paul says it reaches a point where if those people 
are in your midst and they no longer love the Lord or no longer demonstrate that they do. You need to be discerning. You need to make a judgment call. You need to be discriminating. And you may need to separate. You may need to separate. Churches that fail to do this are no longer fruitful. They're no longer productive. They lose the clarity of their message and the effectiveness of their witness because of the internal hypocrisy of their congregation. And so Paul feels compelled if he's going to write anything with his own hand. He wants to make sure they hear this. If you're not going to love the Lord, you're going to incur the wrath of God. And secondly, he makes a prayer. Maranatha, Aramaic expression, the Lord comes or come Lord. Sort of Paul's prayer, maybe Maybe even in light of the people who are not loving the Lord, Paul wants them to come. Paul wants the Lord to come and, and deal himself with them. Or, or more than likely, it's simply written in light of what he had just said in all of chapter 15. When he talked about the resurrection and what awaits us. And Paul talked about how in light of all those things, in light of what what the Lord is going to bring when he, when he appears and we're changed into His likeness at the twinkling of an eye. In light of all that, Paul says we ought to be steadfast and immovable and always abounding in the work of the Lord. Well, if you're going to do that, if you're going to be a, a person who continues to be productive and abounding, if you're going to be a church that's productive and abounding, if you're going to be fruitful and productive and growing, you're going to have to have these kinds of attributes to do it. A gentleness amongst yourselves, a deference to one another, courage and esteem for those who are laboring among you, care for one another and discernment. All the attributes that make a church fruitful. Well, let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we are grateful for even the final words. May we be attentive to them. May we be attentive to them as we are to every conversation that will take place from this point forward. May we be aware that these are your words as much as all the rest of Corinthians. They provide for us an example, a beautiful example of a man zealous to see the work of the Lord progress and a man sound in mind who understands what it takes. Help us to embrace and to embody these attributes as a people of God, as a church of God. Keep us fruitful. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.